With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Hello, welcome to the Inside the Tour podcast on Tennis.com. I'm your host, Nina Pantic, and I'm joined by my co-host, Irina Falcone. Hey guys, how's it going? On this episode, we have Nicole Gibbs. Um, she is ranked around 140 right now. Her career high was 68 in 2016. She's won six ITF Pro Circuit titles and been in the third round of the Australian and US Open. And she also enjoyed a historic record-setting career at Stanford, where she's won the singles and doubles titles and the team title and just killed it. Um, we're going to talk with Nicole about... Tennis, of course, but also life kind of around tennis, a little bit about mental health, about how to handle being in the ups and downs of being a pro and grinding on tour, and keep things light and fun. We also talk about her upcoming wedding, which is going to be in November, to her fiancé, Jack Brody. Uh, thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me, ladies. So excited to be here. All right. So, Nicole, Indian Wells is a great tournament. I think uh, it's definitely my favorite. Where would you rank it for you? Yeah, it's up there for sure as now a California native, um, especially in light of Stanford not being on the calendar anymore. That was a, a serious heartbreaker for me. That being removed, changed over to San, San Jose last year, still in the Bay, but not quite the same. So, um, yeah, I would definitely rate uh, Indian Wells highly. It's also where I've had uh, arguably my best results. So really looking forward to getting back there and hopefully competing in both the weeks. My ranking is a little shady right now. It's around 140, um, which I looked at the cut for Indian Wells qualies last year and it was hovering around 135. Um, so I'm going to be holding my breath a little bit either for a last minute um, alternate entry or um, possibly a wild card, which would give me a little more security. But um, so far, that's the plan. Yeah, I know that the cut was very strong last year because uh, I was one out. Uh, I think at like 136. So uh, yeah, it was uh, pretty strong. And I think I was two out of Miami. So duly noted for any time you're playing Indian Wells or Miami, you got to be ranked among 130 or lower. Right, exactly. And that's just for qualifying. Did you end up getting in or no? No, I just uh, got to enjoy Indian Wells as a spectator, which was exceptionally fun, and went skiing after, so there was a silver lining. Yeah, that's, that's a good attitude, and it's not the worst place in the world to be one out, so uh, hopefully, even if I'm in that boat, um, you know, I can make the best of it the way you did. It's such an amazing venue uh, just to get to hang out in, much less um, get to play in front of the crowds there. They're really engaged, and they get behind the Americans well, and it, it's just a really awesome environment and fun to be a part of. Uh, Indian Wells is kind of where you had, you just mentioned you had some like great success in 2016. 
How often do you catch yourself looking back at that year because you got your career high and that was a massive breakthrough? Do you look back at that fondly? Do you look back at that like, I want to do that again? Or is it kind of annoying to be like, oh, I've dropped lower than that? Um, I think a little bit of all of those things. Um, I I don't necessarily look back and say, you know, oh, what, what exactly was I doing then? Um, because I think that can get a little obsessive um, when you start going down that road. Um, but I, I think the big takeaways are important to think about um, when you're trying to rebuild your game and get back to where you know you can play at. Um, so there were some things that I knew I was doing well then. I was, um, you know, my court positioning was really good. And I think I was tough as nails from the baseline, not making a lot of mistakes. Um, so that's definitely something I've been looking back on kind of recently. Um, I'm in a little bit of, like I said, a, a rebuilding moment um, with my intentions on the court. Um, so, yeah, I, ha I have had cause to kind of look back on that. I noticed when you said that uh, it can really be a downfall for players if you start thinking about your past years and oh my gosh I did this so well and people don't realize that every year is different and a lot of people that don't play tennis on the professional tour know about the ranking system and how you're supposed to do just as good or better to kind of keep the same ranking and I, I know from personal experience I mean you can just pretty much go down a rabbit hole once you start thinking well I remember in this tournament I ate this food and I was doing this and it can really mess you up for the remainder of your year if that's all you're thinking about of what you used to do. Yeah, and I think not just that, but in general in sports, we have a tendency to be really type A and want to control all of our circumstances. Um, and while I think there is value in that, I think I can definitely really easily go down that rabbit hole. So I, I do try to avoid that sometimes and just say, you know what? Um, tennis is awesome. I want to be as good as I can be. Um, but I, I can't let myself get to the point where I'm just obsessively racking my brain for every inch of performance, because then you kind of stop being a, a person and you get all anxious and, and worried about every little detail. So it's definitely that fine balance of making sure that you're pushing the envelope and making sure that you're checking all the boxes, but then also having some perspective and, you know, realizing there is in fact life beyond a tennis court. <laughs> Just that you say that you're like, that's something actually further or beyond tennis. Do you ever, I mean, you're only turning 26 this year, you have a lot of years left in tennis. Do you ever think about what you want to do after or has it crossed your mind yet? Oh, for sure. But it changes every day. So I can't look at one thing and say, oh, that's for sure what I want to do. I think I can say with some degree of certainty that it will not be around tennis. Um, I could eat my words on that. Uh, but I, I do kind of envision having a shift in my life after tennis that kind of allows me to, you know, gain perspective and and look at the world from a different angle than just, you know, the tennis angle that I've been looking at it uh, through my whole life. But you're still very much in this tennis bubble. What do you think keeps you going? Like the biggest motivation, you know, the, the New Year starts, you only had like a short off season. It all kind of keeps going and going and going. Is there something that you think about that keeps you going to practices and signing up for these tournaments and thinking about what you should do next? Yeah, I think it's just really um, that kind of intrinsic motivation that comes from, I don't know, being an athlete from a young age. I I actually have struggled a little bit in the past uh, six months to a year, maybe, um, with maintaining really consistent motivation levels. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm, you know, not putting in the work on a consistent basis. I think I am. 
Um, but there are just times as an athlete where you can kind of say, wow, I'm really motivated right now and I'm getting the best out of every minute of this practice or this training session. And then there are times where maybe it feels a little bit more like you're going through the motions. Um, and I've definitely had bouts with that in the past year, two and a half years ago now, almost three years ago now was my last career high ranking. So that is frustrating for me. Um, I definitely feel uh, that I've been underperforming a little bit. And I think for the first year or so of that, I was like, how can I get it back? And, you know, in that stressed out, like figure it out mode. And then I kind of um, entered this acceptance mode in the second chapter of that, where I was kind of like, okay, well, I tried forcing it and it wasn't coming. And now I'm kind of in this like, well, <laughs> I really hope this turns around. But um, no, I mean, I, I still find myself, you know, looking at, at it from different angles and, and trying to add in new things, but um, maybe just not with the same sense of like anxiety and obsessiveness that I perhaps was a, a year or two ago. So I, it remains to be seen whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not truthfully sure. Um, but it does get tough to main, maintain motivation when things are consistently not going your way or it feels that way. As an athlete too, you also hold yourself at such a high standard. You have this expectation of yourself. And like we mentioned before, I mean, past results can definitely affect us in the future because that's what you go back to. Um, but what would you say are the things that are kind of just the hardcore beliefs and hardcore exercises, for example, that you do on and off the court that are helping you just continue and your motivation to continue playing? The biggest thing for me is just work ethic. Um, it has been since I was a really young kid. Uh, I was never the most talented tennis player. Um, and I think I had to get by on a lot of hard work and heart. Um, and so I've actually been going back to the drawing board a little bit in terms of you know, my game style and for once thinking of it from a really, really different perspective instead of like, okay, what does the WTA tennis game look like and how can I mold myself into it? I'm actually kind of looking at it from the angle of what playing style gives me joy and is like fun to embody on the court. I think Irina, you are a great example um, or are a great example of a player who uses so much creativity and plays in kind of an artful way. Um, and so I've been kind of thinking about how I can do that, like make tennis a little bit more of an art form, a little bit more fun. Um, and that's what I've been going to on the court lately. Um, and then other areas of discipline that I think are really important, um, my fitness, I've put a lot of stock into that, especially in the past two, three months. Um, so I'm really looking forward to hopefully reaping the benefits of that in terms of stamina on court, um, you know, what I'm able to do and accomplish, um, but also just from a health perspective, I think it's massive. Um, and then to that same end, uh, nutrition, I think is, is really, really important. And it's something that I look at, um, very carefully day to day, uh, whether or not I'm competing. Well, first off, thank you so much for the compliment. Um, my coach has always told me, he's like, you know, if you're having fun, chances are you're winning. Um, and it's such a catch 22 cause yeah, I'm usually, if I'm losing, I'm probably not going to be having a lot of fun. So I appreciate your compliment. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely can be very difficult on the court if you are not performing at the level that you expect to and expect to also have a smile on your face. So I can, I can relate to that uh, really hard. And um, 
I don't know if you remember this, but uh, we talked about the Andre Agassi book, I don't know how many years ago, and you told me that you could relate to it so much just because you felt about tennis the same way that he did. Um, do you still feel that? Is it something that's kind of evolved after, you know, playing as much as you have, being on the tour as long as you have been? Like, has that uh, changed at all? It has definitely evolved. I definitely had, at best, a love-hate relationship with tennis up until probably college for me. Um, and then, you know, at that point, there was a little bit more joy that I kind of, like, derived intrinsically from the game um, at that stage. Um, but I do kind of reflect on how it's been a difficulty in my life that um, when things are really challenging and re when the results are not lining up the way I'd like to, I don't have that kind of unconditional, deep, deep love of the game to really fall back on. Um, but it's been a really interesting sort of mental challenge for me is like, how can I reframe that? How can I um, look at my life and my career with more gratitude. Um, and yeah, it's something I'm striving for every day to kind of find that extra element of joy or enjoyment, because I really think that that will unlock a lot of what my potential is if I'm really able to access that. But yes, I, I loved the Agassi book. I cried through like half of it. <laughs> I was very emotional. I thought it was a uh, just a, a beautiful portrayal of, um, you know, a story that I found uh, in many ways kind of shakingly similar to mine. I can totally relate to what you're saying and that book as well. Like I really felt very similar and I kind of understood, I, I felt more understood in a way because you play this sport your entire life and everyone expects you to love it and to be in love with it, but not everyone loves their jobs and not everyone loves I don't think anyone loves 100% of their job. So, I mean, I totally get it. Is there is there a tough times where, I mean, I feel like the transition between like where you're ranked, you have these big tournaments, the Grand Slams, where you have this big stage and everyone's cheering for you. You've made third round twice. And then there's this huge high. And then you go and play, like you, you say you signed up for 25Ks. There's, you know, 15Ks and 50Ks, Midland. I mean, how do you handle the differences of these emotions of going from big stages to little stages and then back again, like over and over? Yeah, I think um, that really exposes, you know, when you don't have a fully authentic or unconditional love of the sport. Um, you know, you got to love tennis. Uh, no, no offense to Midland, but you got to love tennis if you're going to play in Midland and, you know, you're playing on court seven. Uh, there are like four spectators. It's minus five outside. Uh, you're not getting through on adrenaline and, and, and environment alone. Um, so I, I do find it challenging, uh, the ping-ponging back and forth between levels. Um, but at the same point, at the same time, um, if my process is really clear and I have a good idea of how I can get better that week, that's really what motivates me. And maybe that's something that I love about tennis um, without it being loving the sport explicitly in its own like right, I guess. Um, so if I have a really clear agenda, I know how I can get better. I enjoy improving as a tennis player um, and as a human. It's something I take a lot of joy in. Um, and if I feel like that's happening, then you know what? I can take a first round loss in Midland on court seven with four spectators um, and I can take it in stride. It's when you kind of feel like you're banging your head against the wall, trying the same things and, um, you know, 
expecting a different result and you have those external elements going on, like then it can get really emotionally challenging. I can totally understand being on court seven at Midlands. Yeah, that's, it's never going to be easy, especially, I mean, I remember playing a 25 in Surprise, Arizona. I mean, there's literally no one watching. Um, and and it, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, I think it, it's brutal. I think it just takes a lot out of you emotionally. It's just taxing. Um, just you have to keep telling yourself, like, it's worth it. It's worth it. And it's really, really worth it. Because I, I know that there's times where, I mean, the mind can wander very, very quickly, as we all know. Um, but I just, I just had a quick question. You, you've played Midland how many times? Three times. And I'm pretty sure that every single time I've sworn that I'm not going to go back. And I love the people there. So I feel bad for saying that. But uh, I'm not learning from my mistakes in scheduling. And the reason why I'm wondering is because two out of the three times now, I think you've lost to the tournament winner. Is that right? Yeah, so my track record with draws in Midland has been subpar. Um, I lost <laughs> to I lost to Naomi Osaka in the second round, the first year I was there. And mind you, this is indoor. That's not a good indoor matchup for me. This up-and-comer last week, Katie McNally, was just playing lights out. Um, I was actually down 6-0-2-0 in that match before losing 6-0-7-5. So I was definitely having some existential moments out there just getting creamed by a 17-year-old, which, incidentally, not the first time that's happened in the past 12 months. But, um, yeah, definitely... Definitely not my finest moment on the tennis court. But see, it's funny you say that because for me, how I take it, how I'm not being a, you know, the, the haters that just see the score and they're like, oh my gosh, she lost to a 17 year old. I'm like, she lost to the tournament winner. And the last time you went, you lost to Naomi Brody, who was the tournament winner. And the last time before that, you lost to someone who's number one in the world now. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's like, okay, were they bad losses or were they just really, really crappy draws? Yeah, that's that's the game we play with ourselves 12, 12 months out of the year. Am I having bad losses or are these terrible draws? <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like playing someone 10 years younger than you, nothing sounds worse, but the way you put it in perspective definitely helps because these kids are so good and like that's kind of the way things work, right? At some point, you guys are the 16-year-olds that were like up-and-comers challenging these veterans and probably beating them and then this happens, but it's just like kind of the way things go. Um, I wanted to transition to talking about you on social media because everyone always mentions that like any phrase Nicole Gibbs involves like your platform and how many followers you have and how like outspoken you are. But there's one recent thing that I noticed. Um, it's called Behind the Racket with Noah Rubin. And I'm completely obsessed with this page. I think it's genius. I don't know how he thought of it. I don't know how he put it together. We'll have to have him on the podcast to figure this out. But did he approach you? Did you want to share with him? And how did you get, I mean, it's so personal. And it's it's a caption, but it's like a captivating paragraph that kind of brings you in and shares something so raw. How did you, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, so um, I actually came by the page purely on fanship. Um, I saw it tagged in something and I opened the page and I was also like you just totally obsessed, um, with the idea behind it and the execution. Um, I think Noah's brilliant for doing this and making it a purely like player motivated platform. I love that it's run by him and not just someone who, 
you know, wanted to feature um, tennis players. I think it makes it all that much more personal. So I actually saw the page in Newport, um, was immediately obsessed, reached out to Noah and was like, please, please let me um, write something for you because I think this is an awesome initiative. And, um, you know, I want to encourage more women on the WTA side to participate in it. So hopefully if I participate, then others will as well. Um, And that's kind of how that occurred. Last year, as you know, uh, I decided to take a break. Uh, just mentally, I was just not there. And I decided to step away from the sport. And I remember you were one of the few people that actually wrote me and said that you considered it very brave uh, because it's something that you'd probably felt before as well. And it's, I, I think it's amazing that you do speak out about it because everyone's going through stuff. You know, no one really knows what's happening behind closed doors. No one really knows the process that people have to go through every single day just just to make it through their day. Um, so yeah, I mean, just props to you. It's it's amazing to actually see someone be so raw, be so open and so candid with, which I mean, the amount of people that it's reached, you probably have no idea how many people are going to be impacted by it. So that's pretty amazing. So props to you. Thank you. And yeah, I, I really did think that was brave um, because, you know, I had been reflecting on my own terms just about, Uh, kind of when it's time to pull the plug or officially call it quits on tennis. It's like, okay, how many years of me being 110 to 150 in the world or 110 to 200 in the world or falling outside of the 200? Like, what's the trigger um, that would make me kind of say, okay, you know what, it's time to either take a step back or to retire. Um, And I think those questions can be like so scary for us on tour because, you come to this moment where you're like, yeah, I actually am pretty actively miserable doing what I'm doing, but I don't really know how to define myself outside of tennis. You've always been an athlete. Um, you've always been like, you know, wheeled, you know, grinding away, um, trying to make this dream a reality. And, you know, where does that leave you when you say, okay, enough is enough. I'm not enjoying this anymore. Or at least that's something I've grappled with. So um, I think it is really mature and really uh, brave to take that space and really like explore what else it means to be Irina Falcone. Um, I definitely hope that um, when I take that step, I'll I'll do it with the confidence and the openness that you have. Um, And thank you for saying all those nice things as well about, um, you know, my openness. Uh, We're obviously talking about um, how I've been discussing uh, my battle with uh, depression more openly. Um, I recently, I've really tried to push myself to share a little bit more about it because I find myself kind of waiting until I've already weathered the storm to kind of reflect on it as opposed to really kind of getting into it and sharing, um, you know, with my followers or with people on social media, like while I'm going through it. And I think there is a a really important layer to that, um, that I'm much more vulnerable if I'm actually going through it versus if I feel on the other side of it. And then I'm kind of just reflecting like, oh, I went through this really tough thing. So, um, yeah, just really trying to get myself to open up more, say, you know what, things have been really tough. Um, and I have been taking it hard sometimes, but I'm still grinding away and I'm using all these different kind of strategies to kind of move through that pain and discomfort and try to grow from it. 
that's that's really cool i mean mental health is something that people don't realize how important it is and how much you have to work at it um i know for a fact that uh one of the people that i'm working at it's the same it's the same thing as just any injury if you have a shoulder injury you have to rehab it and uh you know talking about uh, mental health and talking about what you're going through is a form of rehab and that's one of the most um kind of creative ways that I've seen uh, me open up just because I'm like, I'm getting better by opening up. And uh, I, I've been working with someone too, and it's, I have no shame in talking about it. And I know a lot of people do have that moment where they're like, oh, well, you know, I must appear weak if I'm talking to someone. But at the end of the day, you're actually helping yourself so much more than you know, because everyone needs therapy and whether you're an athlete whether you just have a nine to five job I think it's so important to know that it is okay to not be okay I I know that sounds like such a cliche and I know it's a hashtag but it's so true yeah no it it really is true I was actually recently uh, talking with another active ATP player actually who I obviously won't name but um you know, he was expressing that he goes through a lot of the same things. Um, and you know, I was just saying, if you're going through stuff, like nobody understands this life better than another tennis player, please feel free to communicate with me because I think that sense of, um, you know, companionship just helps so much. Just knowing that other people are going through a lot of the same things. You don't have to feel like a burden if you're sharing, Um, And then I think there are so many other like useful, um, you know, tricks and techniques that you can use to to kind of work your brain maintenance the exact way you would work your physical maintenance. Um, For me, that's meditation every day. Um, I just opened my Headspace app right before this podcast, actually, and um, did a 15 minute meditation. Um, And I think I'm on a 47 day streak right now, which is my career best. Um, So that was my a New Year's resolution for me to try to meditate every single day, even if that means five minutes, um, you know, just before bed, if I didn't get it in that day, um, just making sure I'm giving myself a little bit of space um, to kind of recover and, and rest my brain in a way that we don't really allow ourselves to in waking hours mentioned headspace it's uh it's a great app i use it myself and there's been a few times that i've actually helped others with it and introduced it uh but yeah i think it's a wonderful app i think um just one of the things that i actually worked on today and one of the strategies that i spoke about with my uh, mental health counselor was to have an intention in mindfulness So, for example, how many times do you just go and you eat and you're just eating, but you're not actually realizing the actual chewing? You don't um, acknowledge how it's nourishing your body or when you're brushing your teeth, you don't actually think about it because it's just so boring. But if you actually have intention through everything you do, it just makes you so much more aware. And, um, you know, one of the strategies I think is probably great for our listeners to know that work for me is to kind of have a little, I I do a little singing tune every single time I'm doing something. So if it's like cleaning clothing or like folding my sheets, I'm constantly just saying that I'm doing it in a kind of a singing voice. I don't know if I'm a complete nerd or not, but it helps me because it helps me just focus on that. It helps me keep a tune and I can't think of anything else other than singing. Um, 
And obviously, I won't、uh, put our followers through my singing voice, but that's what works for me. <laughs> no, I think that's awesome. Just the idea of bringing joy or lightness to、um, things that we consider mundane in life.、Um, I think so much of you know unhappiness or frustration with life comes from like this heavy rumination or you know keeping things heavier rather than light, and、uh, then it becomes very easy to be bored by life and. Try to drown it in alcohol or other vices,、um, just as a distraction, because it feels, you know, so heavy all the time. So anytime you can mix in a little bit of lightness, whether that means singing through your laundry or,、um, you know, just doing something that makes you genuinely joyful, I think those things are so important. I'm also really impressed by. I mean, talking about the stuff is so hard to your friends and your family and your significant other, but then talking about it. In a public space, like you just said to your followers, is so it just seems so daunting to me. So to be able to do that is really impressive. And and do you do you feel like when you share with your followers things that are hard or personal or anything, do you ever feel like you get a lot of support and people being like, "Hey, I totally understand," or like, "You help me." Yeah.、Um, first of all, thank you.、Um, second of all, I think it, this might be kind of strange,、um, and I, I don't think I've ever said this out loud, but I, I do think it's true.、Um, in a way, it's. Almost easier for me to open up to,、um, you know, like quote unquote strangers、um, than it is sometimes、uh, in my intimate relationships. I think Jack, my fiance, would be the exception to that,、um, but I definitely don't feel comfortable,、um, you know, talking to、uh, close friends and family frequently about how exactly I'm feeling because I, I think you carry this sense of. Um, being burdensome when you're doing that. I was just talking about that earlier. How I think that mentality is really unhealthy, but、um, that does seem to rear its head more in my personal relationships than it does with my like media-facing persona. I have no problem kind of like lifting the veil and saying, "Hey, this has been really tough."、Um, but in the day-to-day -day moments, I do find it, you know, as challenging as anyone to share. Um, kind of what I'm going through with the people who honestly could probably be helping me the very most.、Um, with that being said, yes, whenever I share, I feel this huge uptick in sort of like relief、um, because you don't feel like you're hiding something,、um, and then also just so much positivity. I mean, for all of the trolling that we get on social media, I find it fascinating how positive. And supportive people are when you talk about、um, mental health issues, which you know, ten years ago may not have been the case.、Um, but you know, with this kind of like new wave of、um, transparency and and emphasis on on mental health, I feel like people are just doing a really good job of you know supporting each other at least publicly. I think that's amazing that you have a support system like Jack. For for those of you that don't know Jack, he is. Truly, light in my life. He is so awesome, Jack Brody. Your fiance, your wedding is coming up. I am sure that you are very excited, but also probably have a lot of wedding details to hash out before the big day. Or are you are you good to go? Um, yes, lots of details to work out.、Um, the date is November ninth, so we are 
we still have a little bit of distance between us and the actual ceremony, but we're just starting to lock things down. Just got the venue. Um, I've had multiple dress appointments this week. So that's like a whole separate category of my life that feels like almost surreal right now. Um, I think you always like think about what your wedding is going to feel like and be like, and for it to be kind of like coming into full view now is just kind of surreal and, and really fun. And, and like we said, like light and joyful, it's something that's like completely, uh, separate from my quote unquote identity as a tennis player. So it's been really fun. Did you say yes to the dress or you're still looking? Not just yet. I have a couple appointments next week with uh, a couple of vendors I'm pretty excited about. So we'll see. Uh, my first appointment was kind of brutal. Um, I had this dress that like I loved online and I went in person and it was just like a brutal case of you are not the six foot 110 pound model that they were using on the site. Um, so I, I looked very different than I had expected in that that was going to be a no. Um, so that was like a little bit of a disheartening start, but, um, I have some, some really exciting kind of vendors that I, I'm looking at now that I'm, I'm stoked for and bringing back the energy. That's awesome. My, uh, my sister's actually getting married in about a month and a half. And uh, I went to her her dress shopping day. And uh, yeah, it's always so funny how they start off like, this is what I want. And then once they put it on, it's like, this is not what I want. So uh, yeah, I can just imagine the stress that you're going through. But I have a feeling you're going to find the perfect dress. And uh, your engagement photos from last year, I believe, were absolutely darling. So I cannot wait to see what your wedding pictures are going to look like. <laughs> Thank you. It's all very fun. Yeah, and I'm still, I watched, uh, this is creepy, but I watched the proposal video from Jack to you again today. I've, I always saw it when I was on Instagram, I think, um, but I watched the video today and it just, oh, it just, it's just shocking what he did. It's so cool and it's so creative and, it, and all the thought, oh, it's so great. Yeah, no, he, he absolutely crushed it. Um, I was just talking recently with someone like, I was kind of getting to that point in a relationship where I was like, okay, it's been like six years, it's probably about time for us to get engaged, um, you know, kind of like tapping my my watch. Um, and, and I was starting to get this sensation of, well, if we keep waiting like this, like, it's not a surprise anymore. I'm not going to be surprised. Like, you know, it, it's going to be weird. I'm not, I'm not going to be emotional because I, I'm, I've known it's coming for so long. Um, and I have to say, I could not have been any more wrong. I totally underestimated Jack. He had a totally over-the-top epic proposal. Um, and just, I, I reflect on that all the time, how it was just so fairy tale like and he made it as perfect as it could have been. And I was just so overwhelmed with emotion. So your wedding is at the end of the year, November. Um, let's hypothetically imagine it's December. You're looking back on a year. What would make you proud and happy both life and career wise like a perfect scenario um maybe goals wise or just even health wise like to look back at 2019 what's perfect I think um goals for tennis uh would be I I gotta get out of the numbers game uh I'm not gonna sit here and say oh if I'm top 100 I'll be happy because uh, it just never works that way. You can be 180 in the world and perfectly happy, or you can be 20 in the world and be absolutely miserable with your life. So I'm going to move out of that ranking oriented goal. Um, 
thinking and move into what I talked about earlier, which is just trying to find a little bit more um, joy and artistry in the game. Um, I'm hopefully going to be debuting a little bit of a different style um, the next time I hit the courts at the end of February. And I want to tweak that to get the most, um, you know, fun and satisfaction uh, from myself as possible. So that's my goal in tennis is just to really enjoy the art of what I'm doing and, uh, and be a little less, um, you know, like one dimensional, I guess, on the court. Um, and then personally, I mean, just try to savor every moment of this wedding planning process and then just have hopefully the best, most fun wedding of all time, uh, you know, come November. I, I just want everyone to have like an amazing time and um, to look back and say, uh, you know, that was that was a really fun and, and, and love filled weekend. Um, I think that would that would make my heart very happy. Definitely looking forward to your year and your season. And I mean, I'm sending you good vibes. I'm hoping it goes very, very well, especially the wedding, which sounds like it's going to be amazing. Um, but we can end we can end on that note, on a happy note um, with this podcast. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I've been Nina Pantic. And I've been Irina Falcone. Thanks for listening, you guys. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 